From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, a new poll from CNN shows Donald Trump with a five-point lead over President Biden in Georgia. Meanwhile, a new Wall Street Journal poll gives Trump a lead over President Biden in national standings for the first time. I'm Tia Mitchell. Congress is headed for the holiday recess later this week, and it's unlikely they will reach a new agreement for funding Israel or Ukraine. President Biden is pushing hard for a deal, but that would need the GOP to agree to new border regulations. Plus, the new state legislative and U.S. House maps have been signed by Governor Kemp and are on their way to federal judge Steve Jones. And Rudy Giuliani will soon learn how much it will cost him for defaming two Fulton County election workers. Follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet... You can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia, where we aim to set the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics every weekday morning live right here on WABE. I'm Bill Nygut, joined today not from her Washington uh, office, but across from me in the studio, our Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell. I'm so glad to see you in person. Yes, I'm happy to be here in Atlanta in the flesh, not in my closet. Yeah, well, I was thinking also about the fact that while it is cold here, I just checked the Washington weather on the NBC station up there. There's heavy, wet snow falling in parts of Washington and surrounding areas, Tia. So good for you to be out of there. (laughs) I I escaped it just barely. (laughs) Well, it's just terrific to have you here. So let's get started. We have so much to talk about today, and we are welcoming to our conversation Sam Greenglass, who is politics reporter for WABE. Sam, how are you doing? Hey there. I'm doing well. Good morning. Thank you for being with us. And Theron Johnson, who is one of the best plugged in Democratic uh, insiders in Georgia. He has worked on Democratic campaigns, including Barack Obama's presidential campaign. He will certainly be involved in uh, giving whatever counsel and advice he can in the Biden reelection campaign. And he is part of the uh, Political Breakfast uh, podcast produced by WABE, along with his partner, Brian Robinson. Theron, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Bill. It's good to be with everyone. All right, so let's start, Tia. And and as we do this, let's say that when we talk about polls, we always make the point that a poll is just a snapshot of a moment in time. We are still 
almost a year away from the general election. Um, and yet there are two polls out today that signal some potential trouble for President Biden. First, Tia, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, well, let's not talk about the Wall Street Journal first. Let's go to CNN's poll because CNN pushed out a poll this morning which shows that among Georgia registered voters, not likely voters, registered voters, Donald Trump right now has 49% of the vote over President Biden's 44% of the vote. And one of the things that's really interesting about their poll is that they talked about, they talked with people who did not cast ballots in 2020, but are now thinking they're going to come back and vote in 2024 and Trump leads in that category by 26 points over President Biden. It'd be interesting to figure out what that's all about. But give us your general thoughts about the CNN poll first, Tia. So this um, CNN poll in battleground states, I think, provides more troubling data if you're um, in the Biden camp. Again, we'll keep putting that caveat. It's just a snapshot in time. We're a little under a year away from the general election and things will change and shift. I think it specifically or particularly because um, Biden is hanging back. Now, there's a lot of criticism that's saying, hey, Biden, you need to ramp up. You need to get your staff in Georgia. You need to ramp up in the battleground states. But it seems to be a pretty clear strategy from the Biden campaign to hang back while the Republican field is not yet set. Um, and so I think that also needs to be taken into account when you look at these polls. That being said, it's, and we'll, we're going to talk about that throughout the show today, but I think the Democratic coalition is fracturing in ways that I think it would be, um, I think it would be problematic for Democrats to just say these fractures are fixable. Um, and so young people are turning away. Um, um, Muslim voters or voters from Arab countries are turning away. Jewish voters in some aspects are turning away. And I'm talking about on the Democratic side, the Democratic coalition is fracturing. And um, progressives say they're turning away. And that to me is what's um, and as a result, young people are turning away. Sam, let's uh, one other quick uh, uh, number here. Um, President Biden's approval rating, again, among these registered voters in Georgia, according to CNN, is hovering just below 40 percent. Never a good sign for a an incumbent president. It's about where uh, uh, Trump was back when he was running uh, in uh, 2020. And we know what happened in his race. Yeah, I mean, I think one caveat to put on this, though, is, as Tia mentioned, we're still like a year away from this election. And that's kind of the work of the campaign is to communicate the stakes of the choice at hand. And we really haven't seen that come into play yet. You know, we're so far away and a lot can change. However, you know, looking at the Georgia numbers and also Michigan was also featured in this poll where I'm from which shows quite a spread uh, with Trump ahead after some pretty significant Democratic wins back in 2022. So that does, you know, give me some pause uh, about Biden's position headed into 2024. So Theron, um, one of the other interesting things about this CNN poll, and by the way, we also have a Wall Street Journal poll that came out over the weekend, which shows for the first time 
nationally, uh, Trump leading Biden by about five points. But one of the things that's interesting about both of these polls is that when you dig down, you see that voters uh, agree more with Biden than Trump on some key issues, abortion obviously being a big one. So in many ways, I think as a Democrat, you would say that this is a warning sign, but also a map for how you build uh, toward winning next year. Listen, Bill, there's no doubt that this is going to be a very, very close election. Uh, It was close in Georgia um, and it's going to be close again. And I think that the CNN poll gives us sort of a very early snapshot. But early, this early on, polls to me are not that predictive as far as the outcome. You know, I'm going to mention three names to you, and then you're going to be able to probably tell me quickly what these three former presidents have in common. Uh, former President Ronald Reagan, former President Bill Clinton, and my former boss, former President Barack Obama. All three of these men were down in the polls and had low approval ratings before they went into their reelections, roughly about 12 months out. And it's, it's Tia, and as Tia and Sam mentioned, you know, look, if we're talking like these numbers like six months or below, then I, I start to really worry. Right now, I am confident that um, while Tia is right, there is a lot of repairing that is going on that needs to sort of continue within the Democratic Party. I just think that the Biden coalition that we formed in Georgia when I was a senior advisor for the campaign, the Biden-Harris campaign, is going to be a similar coalition that we're going to create in Georgia. Now, there are going to be some new caveats to it. There's going to be some nuances. There are going to be new people. There are going to be a lot of um, people who have been there. But ultimately, when you look at where the record of President Biden is resonating with these voters in these polls, I mean, a lot of these people, as you mentioned, Bill, when when you talk about what he's done around Medicare, people support that. Uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, 70 plus percent of the people, they support that to talk about the CHIPS Act. But let's even bring it home here to Georgia. What hasn't happened yet, and, and Tia and Sam mentioned this, is that uh, while we've seen an unprecedented $25 million media buy from the Biden-Harris campaign in the minority communities, particularly focusing on African-Americans and Hispanic voters, we really haven't seen these sort of direct messaging to voters to remind voters of how much money Georgia has received because of this president, what he's been able to do around infrastructure, uh, bringing money here for MARTA, uh, electric school buses, electric buses. I mean, all the different things that we have been benefiting from manufacturing jobs. Yes, the governor and other people deserve a lot of credit, but it's been this Biden-Harris coalition, these administrations that have delivered for Georgia. So the poll numbers are concerning. However, we are less than a year out. I think this race will tighten, and I think it's going to be a very close race. And once it becomes head heads up between either Joe Biden or possibly Donald Trump and maybe even a third party candidate, voters will pay closer attention to the people who are actually um, will be their choices to vote. Right now, what we're seeing, Bill, is a lot of emotion and a lot of passion from voters who, right, quite frankly, even though we're having record numbers of job creation, um, we had a record low unemployment, particularly around Black and Hispanics. Um, Hispanic businesses, minority businesses, small businesses are booming right now. We just had a jobs report um, that was better than most people predicted. So let me, but let we got to figure out how to drill it more down state specific. I, I apologize for interrupting you there. Tia, a lot of what, what uh, Theron says uh, is is true about the record of the administration, but it hasn't gotten through to voters. And we know that the, that the uh, Democratic National Committee has dumped a lot of money 
into Georgia already trying to promote uh, the accomplishments of President Biden, but apparently it hasn't resonated because his approval ratings here are still very low. They have a lot of work to do to convince people that he's accomplished what Theron says he has. Right. And so a few points I want to make. Number one, you mentioned that this this Wall Street Journal poll is the first time the Wall Street Journal has polled and found Trump leading Biden in a head-to-head matchup, which is true, but it's not the first poll. So there's been a lot of polling recently that has shown Trump with a slight lead. And the concern is that if the Biden administration doesn't start ramping up its messaging, ramping up its ground game, could it be too late? Now, there's a lot of, to Theron's point, there there was similar hand-wringing in 2012, you know, um, and Obama's team was like, we got this, and they had it. They, they, <laughs> they won, you know, so you can question it. Of course, there's always going to be that 2020 hindsight um, once we get to Election Day 2024. Um, so the timing is a question because there's so much on the table and maybe Theron can talk to this. You know, it seems to me that there's a lot that the Biden administration is going to have to get across in the next 11 months. Um, And I'll talk about the economy specifically. Um, That's a place where Biden and his team and his supporters say there's so much good news. There's so much he's accomplished and it's not resonating. It's not that people, um, I think, aren't aware. It's that what the people care about, the prices at the grocery store, aren't necessarily lining up with the good news that the Biden administration says they have to tell. Um, Before we get back to uh, uh, Theron, let's get Sam back in here. Sam, uh, we do want to remember this is a Georgia poll. And in fact, Romney, if you want to go back to 2012, won Georgia by about eight points uh, over uh, President Obama in his reelection campaign. Yeah. So let, let's Tia mentioned ground game for a second and whether, you know, the party and the campaign has been slow at, at trying to percolate this message in Georgia. Uh, over the weekend, I talked to a couple of Democratic operatives, people who are, you know, in the National Party now who have been on the ground in Georgia in past cycles. And I heard kind of two buckets of things. One is that stories like this happen at this point every cycle, that it's kind of alarmist, this hand wringing, it's part of what we expect at this time around. And, you know, the, the state party, the, the structure of organizing has changed in recent cycles. So it's kind of unfair to make comparisons to where, you know, certain levels of staff hires were at at this point in a previous cycle or on a different campaign. On the other side of things, I've talked to one uh, operative who is pretty uh, active in progressive circles who has expressed real fears that there aren't people on the ground at this point having these conversations with voters, that a lot of the folks, you know, having those conversations right now are organizers for the Stop Cop City, the police training center movement for pro-Palestine organizers, but it's not the messaging from the Biden campaign or the national party that's talking about the economic issues, the infrastructure law, climate, things of that nature. So I think we're we're hearing a little bit of both from Democrats right now. Theron, jump in. Look, I, Sam and, and Tia, that's why they're 
great at what they do. I mean, they have the ability to talk to operatives and talk to people uh, about what they're feeling and what they're seeing on the ground. I'm here to tell you as someone who actually has been in the middle of a campaign, you know, as a Southern Regional Director, National Southern Regional Director for President Barack Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. Uh, T is right. I mean, I was begging them to invest in, in Georgia, but let me just take it to a state that we actually won and a state that we lost. You know, just like Georgia, Florida was saying, hey, we're 11 months out. We're not seeing the type of investments in Dade County. And for folks who know Florida, you got to invest in I-4. I mean, Florida really was kind of like three states. But then we had North Carolina over here who Barack Obama had just won in 2008. And we were like, hey, we're not they're not seeing the resources. And so what I, what I would tell you all is what I know is that the Biden-Harris campaign, if you look at the people who are in the leadership of this campaign, I mean, their deputy campaign manager knows how to win in Georgia. Now, what Tia and Sam are both thinking is 2020, 2021 is a different time than 2023. But I also just want to remind our, our listeners is that the Republicans predicted this red tsunami in the midterm elections in 2022. Remember, uh, Joe, Joe Biden and everyone who supported him was supposed to be wiped out. We just saw a few months ago, I was last time I was on this uh, Politically Georgia podcast, I was on here, Bill, bragging about how Democrats won in states like Pennsylvania, Virginia, uh, Kentucky, and Ohio. And so will that sort of strategy that we saw employed in those states work in Georgia? Now, let me say this, though. The, the, the conversations are being had. The people who are these operatives, they're going to come off the bench. A lot of them have moved away. A lot of them are actually coming back. You will see very, very soon some familiar names, some new names of people who are going to be on the ground in Georgia. And the Biden-Harris campaign is going to deploy a tremendous amount of resources, not just on the airwaves, not just on radio, not just digital. You're going to see a very, very striking similarity of the people who worked very hard in this state in 2020 to make Georgia blue for Joe Biden. A lot of that effort and enthusiasm will be replicated in months to come. Uh, Sam, one of the things that's interesting is obviously ground games have always mattered. And now we're watching in Iowa, where, by the way, the Des Moines Register just dropped its latest poll this morning, which uh, shows Biden at over 50 percent for the first time among Iowa voters with uh, uh, DeSantis in second and Nikki Haley trailing by uh, quite a bit. So we know, watch we watch the ground game in Iowa and New Hampshire right now because we know direct contact with voters matters so much. My question is, to what extent um, has ground game early on been replaced by advertising on social media platforms, uh, targeted ads for, say, Hispanic and African-American radio and social media platforms? I just wonder if, you know, I I shared with all of you, Sam, a, a story from Politico, which said there's some concern among Democrats that the battleground states have not seen the infrastructure that Theron says is heading for the Biden campaign here. But but they have been spending money on those other forms of getting the message out. I think both things can be true here. On the one hand, you know, things have changed since the pandemic when campaigns were having to innovate and talk to voters in different ways because they physically couldn't be on doors or out in communities because of safety reasons. And I think that has allowed campaigns to innovate and figure out new ways to reach voters on digital and other spaces. 
But I talked to one Democrat over the weekend who reminded me that there are a lot of voters that need to be talked with, not to, you know, just in a one way vacuum on a Facebook ad, um, you know, especially people who might be have voted for Biden, but frustrated right now with the cost of things or, you know, other other issues that they feel like haven't been tackled. They told me that ground game is how you win in Georgia. People need to be heard out in 2022. It came too late is what they told me. You know, we had Republicans win up and down the ticket, except for Senator Warnock, who was facing a very flawed incumbent. So I think, you know, on one hand, it might be early. There are these other strategies going on, but many Democrats still feel like that one to one conversation is really important, even in this day and age. Yeah. And I think Sam's exactly right in the the issue that Democrats are facing this year is that there are so many people who need to hear different things. And how is the Biden administration going to shape a message that is authentic, genuine, true and accurate, but also speaks to a coalition that is so fractured right now. There, you know, when you think about the Israel-Hamas conflict and people who are sympathetic to Israel either because they're a little bit more conservative on foreign policy or they're Jewish people who feel a, a direct connection to Israel, they want to hear something different than someone who may be considered a little bit more um, progressive, a little bit more sympathetic to the Palestinian people, maybe the younger voters who, again, have a different take on this really complicated and longstanding conflict. So how are you going to speak to one group without turning off the other? That's the complicated calculus that the Biden administration faces right now. Oh, Theron, I think that Tia just made a really, really excellent point. Oh, no, Tia, Tia is definitely um, making some really good points. And look, I'm not going to sit up here and ignore what she's saying. I mean, it's, it's real. Now, what I think will prevail is let's remember, while uh, Sam mentioned, you know, 2020, we won in Georgia. With Joe Biden, 2022, yes, we we did not uh, elect the governor. We did, you know, we did not um, elect a lot of other statewide officials, but we did have some amazing strides here. And, and, and the person I keep going back to is that Senator Warnock was able to win in this state where Republicans threw so much money and so much rhetoric and just, you know, very, very extreme right ideas. And Georgia said, no, we don't want to send that type of person to Washington. And I just will, you know, I just will say this. The one thing that keeps me encouraged is that the, 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 the regional war that we're seeing going on in between Israeli and Palestinian is real. But I think that Americans also care about gun safety. And when you look at what this administration has done, it was able to basically pass legislation, you know, to really support gun safety in this country. I mean, we're still having these murders. I mean, those are the type of things I think voters are going to pay attention to as well. When you look at how we're strengthening uh, access to health care and protecting a lot of those measures that have been in place to make sure that seniors get insulin and reducing that cost. Those are things that voters care about as well. And I truly believe this in a place like Georgia, where we know infrastructure is needed, not saying that all those other issues that Sam and Tia have mentioned are not important. They're very important. But I think once giving a sort of very strategic, data-driven, um, specific messaging point to the people who need to hear it, uh, I think that's going to be um, good, too. And then lastly, build this. Come January, February, mark my word, you will see a lot of what Sam just mentioned, a lot of these door knocking, a lot of these regional neighborhood volunteer events, 
Um, a lot of people, surrogates being used to come to Georgia, local surrogates being highlighted to go back to their communities and push this campaign. All that's going to be launched and we will be in a much different posture then. But I think what the campaign has got to do, they got to continue to show a tremendous amount of discipline and they got to invest early and often as much as possible to stay sustainable and significant in these battleground states. Sam, I got to get to a break, uh, but we just heard we wanted Theron on the show today because we didn't want to hear what Democrats think they're going to counter with in terms of uh, uh, Biden's uh, uh, numbers in terms of reelection. So it was great to hear that. One last question for you that we got to do kind of quickly. President Biden has over the last months emphasized that he believes our democracy is at stake if uh, Donald Trump wins election in 2024. That message uh, they are now starting to recognize is not really reaching the people because it's a very kind of amorphous philosophical argument. So it's interesting when we hear Theron because he talks much more specifically about the kinds of issues that Biden campaign may very well uh, push forward in the months ahead. I mean, this is one big question I have. One thing I've heard from Democrats is that you can't say every single election is the most important election of our lifetime because people start to tune out to that. And so that might be one space where this democracy message doesn't resonate. But I also, you know, as we talk about polls and being a year out, like a lot can be can change in the next year in terms of what's at the forefront of people's minds and in the news, whether this conflict is still raging on, whether Trump is on trial here in Fulton County in August at the height of the election. All these are open questions that I think could shape this. Sam, as we go to break, you you said you stated in very clear terms why we say when we talk about polls, they are a snapshot of a moment in time, not a prediction of where voters are going to head when Election Day finally gets here. Uh, We got to take a break uh, right now. But when we come back, we're going to turn to Tia Mitchell to ask her what's going on as uh, Congress gets set to break by the end of the week uh, in terms of reaching a deal on funding, new funding for Israel and for Ukraine and some kind of deal along the border that'll give Republicans a reason for wanting to pass funding. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from Tia Mitchell, Patricia Murphy, Greg Bluestein, and me, and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. Tia Mitchell joins me in the studio uh, WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass is with us, as is uh, Democratic insider uh, Theron Johnson, who you just heard promoted as being an important part of political uh, breakfast on WABE. Tia, uh, the House and the Senate are both scheduled to uh, go into holiday break by the end of this week at the latest, and we do not have yet an agreement for funding first Israel um, and also Ukraine. Uh, president Zelensky is headed back to Washington to meet with the president and congressional leaders tomorrow. 
But Republicans in both sides of the building are holding things up because they want something more done on the border. Where are we headed with this? Yeah, and I would argue it's mostly in the House. And quite frankly, there are some Republicans, I think of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who opposes funding for Ukraine, period. So there's no border security measure that I think is going to change her mind. Now, there are some Republicans who say the um, this support of foreign wars, particularly Ukraine, but also Israel, quite frankly, they want to couple that with border security measures. They say that the U.S. needs to focus on problems domestically, particularly at the southern border, before we send more money um, to our allies. But again, I think there are enough Republicans who oppose Ukraine, period, because quite frankly, if there are more than four, Republicans don't have a majority. And it's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene in the Georgia delegation who might oppose funding for Ukraine just in and of itself, no matter what they do with the border. That's right. Um, you know, you think there are other kind of um, Republicans in our delegation who at times have kind of taken the more hardliner approach, our Andrew Clydes, our Mike Collins, um, that at times they've been hesitant. I'm not, you know, a lot of them, I think, would be everyone but Marjorie Taylor Greene, quite frankly, has 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 at least indicated that if there are border provisions, for example, they might be able to get on board. Whereas Marjorie Taylor Greene has been among the few to say, no, I don't support money for Ukraine, full stop. But again, right now what's on the table is not just Ukraine as a standalone. It's Israel money, it's border security, and then the White House and Senate Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, are saying, no, let's let's include Ukra Ukraine. If we're going to do it, let's do it. Let's remember just Israel and border funding alone has stalled, let alone adding in Ukraine. It's very unlikely they get something done. As you noted, this is it. This week is it. We know Congress doesn't move fast. And this week, after this week, they're gone um, according to their calendar, until after the new year. Sam, just in terms of Ukraine for a moment, um, we, uh, Tia mentions Marjorie Taylor Greene is opposed and has been for quite some time now to giving any new money uh, to Ukraine. And what I think is uh, particularly interesting about that is we know Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of Donald Trump's staunchest supporters in the U.S. House. And we have to remember that as president, Donald Trump on any number of occasions said he didn't think NATO, unless the European countries would start, he claimed, uh, anteing up their contributions, was worth preserving. Zelensky comes to Washington tomorrow to say, if we don't stop Russia in Ukraine, it's going to become a NATO problem because they'll keep marching east and invade other uh, they'll invade actual NATO companies. Now, we don't know if that's going to happen. Countries, we don't know if that's going to happen. But it's of interest that Marjorie Taylor Greene is such so strong on nationalism as Trump has been. Yeah. And let me mention another place that I think this comes to. Back in January, I spent some time in Andrew Clyde's district in North Georgia. And something I heard unprompted from so many supporters of the congressman Andrew Clyde was this 
disdain or distaste for more funding for the war in Ukraine. You know, this was mentioned alongside other issues that were top of mind for people. And so I think you're right. Some of this comes from the former president. But I think it's something also, I imagine, Green and Clyde and some of these other congressmen are hearing from their constituents, too. Theron, let me turn to the Israel funding for just a moment. We know that in the last uh, AJC poll, we were, I think, all surprised that more than 40% of the respondents to the poll said that um, Israel, supporting Israel, is not in the best national interest of the United States. That a lot of those were younger voters. There has never been a time, Theron, that I can recall since the formation of the state of Israel when America has not been Israel's strongest, most dedicated supporter. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at what what happened there, Bill, I mean, and, and also just the, the U.S. veto, the U.N. Security Council's resolution, uh, which, you know, was backed by a vast majority of the rest of the world. And, you know, we are being looked at by the rest of the world. I mean, like, I'll come back to Ukraine in a second, but particularly around Israel funding, like, it to me, is this unprecedented? You, you're right. I mean, all of our past American presidents have shared a unique in very public, uh, supportive role in, in the state of Israel. And so to, you know, these Hamas attacks on Israel was terrifying uh, and they were inhumane. And, and Israel has every right uh, to defend themselves. But also we're seeing the, um, you know, innocent Palestinians people being killed as, as, as well. And so the killing of civilians um, at all is, is, is a huge tragedy. But, you know, the, the fact that there's this this pushback in the public really not being totally supportive of us standing with a partner and an ally that we've been with for so, so long in, in this country. And then to respond real quickly to, to Ukraine, I mean, I think that you want to think about Ukraine that's very um, just troubling is that this is a nation that is under attack by a country with no regard to sovereignty or democracy. And we've got to make sure that, you know, Republicans don't allow the American people to be fooled. I mean, the Republicans are playing a very dangerous game here. And so if we fail Ukraine and we fail Israel, uh, I, I just worry about our credibility with our allies and how we looked at around around the world. Tia, you, you know, you were talking in the last segment about the split among Democrats on any number of issues. And although Democrats, to the best of my knowledge, have basically said that they're going to support aid to both Ukraine and Israel for the most part? Yes? I mean, there are some Democrats who, for more pacifist reasons, have been opposed. Um, but generally speaking, um, the vast majority of Democrats have supported it. But remember, they voted against the bill to fund Israel because Republicans in the House insisted on this border security. Um, uh, well, no, they insisted no, on offset, yeah, offsetting yeah. it with the IRS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they said that's not how we fund um, foreign um, foreign investment. So it just depends on what the measure looks like when it reaches the floor. Well, I ask you this because although there are certainly some very progressive Democrats who are not happy with the way in which Israel is prosecuting the war against uh, uh, the Palestine, against Hamas and the way it is taking its toll, as Theron points out, on the uh, Palestinian people. Um, it, the, the fact is that there are going to be some, there's some dissension on that side, but in the long run, if for the most part, if they get, got a fairly clean bill, Democrats are going to support funding for both Ukraine and Israel, yes? I think 
fairly clean. The vast majority <laughs> of Democrats would. You would still have a few who are just, again, um, either more conservative in nature or more anti-war in nature that might vote no. But the vast majority of Democrats would. And quite frankly, you would get a good number of Republicans. There probably would be more Republican defections if it were a quote unquote clean bill. But, you know, it goes back to the issues House Republicans have had with their thin majority, with the speakers um, being put on the hot seat. If you put a bill that can pass but would have a lot of Republican defections, then the speaker risks losing his job. And that's why the speaker has been hesitant to work with Democrats. And this, uh, Sam, is another issue that President Biden has got some uh, pressures to deal with. It's a very complicated issue for him in terms of Israel, um, particularly right now. Um, There are a great many people who are concerned that the Israeli response to the horrific barbaric attacks by Hamas have been too punishing in terms of innocent Palestinian civilians. So he hears it from both sides. If he says we're all in for Israel, then he has any number of Democrats and others out there who say, what about the Palestinian people? Where are you on protecting their interests? If he goes home, if he says, yes, Palestinian people are victims of a, of a, a terrible, terrible war, uh, then he hears it from the Jewish community. It seems to me it's one of those issues that it's very difficult to parse. I mean, if my Instagram feed is any indication, you know, and I'm firmly in this 18 to 29 demographic that we talk about so much when it comes to polls, this is something a lot of people are talking about. And I think generationally, there is a, a difference in terms of how people are feeling about this conflict that we're talking about. And uh, I think it is something that is probably going to keep percolating through our politics uh, as we head into 2024 in the coming months. All right, we're going to watch. Um, I think by the end of the week, both the Senate and the House will be gone. We'll see whether there's any progress um, on funding for Ukraine or Israel. And Tia, you'll keep us up to speed on that. We got to get to our final break. Uh, When we come back, Governor Kemp has signed now the new maps. And although we spent an awful lot of time talking about the maps last week, Let's talk about what these new maps, which are now going to go to federal judge Steve Jones, and how they're dealt with in court might impact how people run for office in 2024. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Sam Greenglass, you covered the special redistricting session of the legislature for WABE. Um, obviously, the maps for both uh, state, Senate, and House and U.S. House were passed. Governor Kemp signed those measures. They now are going to Judge Steve Jones, and uh, he's holding a hearing on December 20th to uh, ask both sides. That means those who are opposed to these maps who will make the case why they're not in compliance with his order and the state, which says they are. Um, but we don't know. After December 20th, there will be more litigation. 
I'm interested in how that um, is going to impact people deciding to run for office, where they're going to run for re-election as incumbents. It's going to be very complicated. Well, I think one date to keep in mind here is March 8th. And that is the deadline for folks to show up at the Capitol and declare their intentions to run, to decide where they're going to run. And so we have to have maps, at least for 2024, firmed up in the next couple of months. And that is not a lot of time, given the breadth of legal challenges that we're expecting to see. You know, you mentioned this first hearing on December 20th. That's when Judge Jones will hear arguments about whether these remedial maps meet the guidelines of his order. There's an ongoing appeal to his original order to make new maps in the first place and say he does appoint a special master to draw new maps again. There could be an appeal to that decision, too. So there's a lot of kind of uncharted territory here, even as we have Alabama next door as a backdrop where they have the special master appoint appointed to draw new maps and the courts upheld the maps drawn by them. There's still some complications here in Georgia that are, might keep this ambiguous for a little while longer. And whatever is in firmed up for 2024, ultimately, it might not be the case for future elections after that, because some of these broader legal challenges might not wrap up. They might keep going beyond 2024. Theron, put on your consulting hat, your political consulting hat. How do you advise a, a client what to be doing in the weeks ahead as these maps are still um, unapproved. Uh, uh, the first thing I would tell them is to utilize this short amount of time they have, particularly in the state house and the state Senate, to raise as much money as they possibly can before they go back to session. As many of your listeners know, Bill, in Georgia, legislators cannot raise money during the session. And so you're going to see a lot of Democrats uh, and Republicans, but more Democrats saying, hey, I got to raise money because I don't know where I'm running. But I think that besides the confusion and the complexity that the elected officials are facing, let's not forget about the voters and the taxpayers. Uh, they are the ones that are suffering the most. They are the ones that actually moved to a particular place in Georgia uh, for a better life or, or they want to stay in that area. And the thing that is really not being talked about a lot is that while the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act has been sort of uh, struck down. What's going to be front and center on December 20th, and Sam mentioned March 8th, but he's right. That's that's what people have to declare. But, but does the maps that the Republicans put forward, does it comply uh, with what Judge Jones wanted? And then does it violate the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? Does it protect the opportunities, sort of these coalition districts that we are talking about a lot? But what I would also say in the Congress and I know we'll get to this bill, is that you you could have maybe two members of Congress, uh, he or she maybe switch and look at, at different areas. I think the majority of the Republicans have pretty much decided uh, where they're going to run. But we have a you know two Democratic members, maybe even three. Uh, but I think it's probably around two that actually will probably utilize this as a way to not only raise money, but also to figure out how they continue to look at the infrastructure they have in place and where they need to expand if they have to run in an area that now has counties and areas that, not, that are not familiar with them. Tim? Two points I want to pick up from what Theron just mentioned. One is this complication that state legislators have to run in the district they live in. That is not the case for members of Congress, where there might be some more shuffling. The other point that Theron made about this question of coalition districts, minority opportunity districts, what we're talking about here are districts that are not majority black, 
But people of color make up a majority, Latino voters, Asian American voters, Black voters together. The Supreme Court has not weighed in on this question of whether Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act protects these districts. The 11th Circuit, which Georgia is in, has said that Voting Rights Act protects these districts. The other circuit courts in the country have not come to an agreement on this question. And so one thing I will be watching for is if this is at the center of the arguments made on December 20th or in other future appeals, is this something that brings Georgia's maps up to the U.S. Supreme Court and decides this question I, for once and for you all? Know, what a huge question, because it's conceivable based on what Sam is saying about these so-called opportunity districts is the Supreme Court could rule, uh, uh, could take away one more protection of the Voting Rights Act if they rule against these opportunities, that these opportunity districts don't need to be protected. But I want to ask you about Lucy McBath, back on your beat. Um, we know Judge Jones said there needed to be one additional um, uh, majority minority district, black district, that where people, uh, 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 black voters could elect a uh, representative of their choice. But they didn't really do that. They shifted uh, one district to the west, but took away Lucy McBath's opportunity district up in the seventh. She's got to figure out where to run. Right. And I mean, you get to the crux of what Republicans are pushing the courts to decide. Does the court only care about black districts or does the court care about majority minority districts? And does the court consider the order to preserve, um, to create an additional black district, not at the expense of majority minority districts or not? That's and, and again, Republicans are gambling because if they win, they're able to um, be further empowered to write maps in ways that don't protect access to um, perhaps voters of color, even if they have to protect access for black voters. It would it would provide another tool um, for those who um, knowing that Republicans, quite frankly, their coalition isn't built on voters of color. Um, so I think that's part of the test. Lucy McBath says she's going to be fine mm -hmm. in in her um, performance at the polls have indicated she'll be fine, quite frankly, if she has to introduce herself to new voters. That's what she did in 2022. And she was fine. Um, I think it's more about the bigger question. Theron, you've got a, just about 30 seconds to answer this question. Um, Democrats say right now that um, when Judge Jones said create one more majority black district that gives blacks an opportunity to elect presumably a Democrat, uh, he expected that the, the uh, uh, nine to five balance of Republicans to Democrats would change. But apparently, according to Democrats, this new map keeps it a nine to five uh, distribution Republicans to Democrats. Yeah. And, and Judge Jones is going to have to be very specific that, look, if he says that you did not comply to what I asked you to do, and he was very, very specific, the maps that he received, he wrote a 500 plus response that said that it clearly diluted black voting power. And so I think that what the Republicans are doing to T and Sam's point, they basically lowered the bar. They put forth something that they knew that was probably going to get struck out. And I think they're willing to play the court game. All right. 
I really appreciate this conversation from all of you today. We got a lot of ground covered. And um, as I always feel, I get to listen to such smart people uh, helping me understand, as I hope you're all helping uh, listeners out there understand just what's going on in Georgia and beyond. So Theron Johnson, thank you so much. Sam Greenglass, a pleasure to have you. Tia Mitchell, I know you'll be with us right here in Atlanta all week, and I'm really thrilled about that. Thanks so much for spending time with us today on Politically Georgia. You can now hear us live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10. Or follow us on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.